Any of you guys from the old school stuff where when John says, this is the word of the Lord, what do you say? Yeah. I just like that so much. Can we just do it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just do that every week, okay? When, when whoever reads it says it, just say it. It's just fun. It's unifying, man. Hey, look, if you have a Bible with you, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Colossians if you haven't done that already. Um, if you don't listen, if you don't have a Bible, there are a bunch under a bunch of the chairs in here. Maybe if you just kind of look in front of you, you might see one. There's a black one. And if you actually don't have a Bible at all, you can have that one. Seriously, like, just take it home. That's your Bible. That's a gift. Um, I hope that's okay. Scott, is that cool? I don't know. Um, but take a Bible, you know? Even if you steal it, if you're going to steal something, steal a Bible. I just feel like that's a good policy. Also, <laughs> hey, also, over here on the sides of the stage, guys, there are bookmarks. If you would like a Colossians reading plan bookmark, these are super cool, um, that our Central Services team has created. They have done so much good work on this series for us with the podcast, with uh, the, the Bible studies that we're doing throughout the week, and the reading plan. So if you want to grab one, they're on the sides of the stage uh, before you leave. Mine was bookmarking Colossians today. So Colossians, also the Gospel of John. We're going to go there today, too. So if you want to, like, you know, bookmark it, flip over to Gospel of John, just so you know, we'll be in those two books. All right, let's pray together, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this uh, just amazing, amazing letter called Colossians that we just get to read together here 2,000 years later um, that has been preserved and given to us so that we could know you, so that we could understand you better in your gospel and the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Um, God, what, a, what an amazing passage we have today to see who Jesus is in his nature. So help us to just grab hold of that truth as best we can today and to be encouraged and to be challenged, to be convicted if need be. Um, but God, just to be led into worship to Jesus, who is the image of you, God, and, and your eternal son forever. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1. Yeah, we're going to be in verse 15 is where we're going to start uh, this morning. But before we kind of jump in there, just a Man, I thought about from last week as we were talking about the center of the gospel, right, and the nature of what the gospel is, the story of Jesus, uh, God's grace in truth given to us in Christ. And we, we really just kind of ended up last week talking about Jesus died for our sins, right? And this is the message of the gospel. And obviously the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, is at the very center of the Christian faith, the death, his death is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and our faith that we put in him. We put in him because he died and he rose again. And in him, we are reconciled to God is what it says in our passage here. So I think it's important for us, especially as we read through a book like Colossians, just to take every effort we can to understand better and better the death of Jesus and what that means for us, what the, what the death of Jesus has purchased for us, has bought for us as Christians, as Scott was talking about this morning, as we take communion every, every week. We do that because we want to just return to the center of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so, I think we must do everything that we can, right, to learn and to grow in our understanding of the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, and so the death of Jesus matters for so many reasons, right? The death of Jesus matters for us as we kind of think about that and ask ourselves questions about his crucifixion. And, and there are things, there are so many aspects of the crucifixion, things like when he was crucified, things like where he was crucified and how he was crucified. And those things all matter greatly. They have great significance. It does matter when Jesus died. 
It matters very much when Jesus died. Paul says in Romans chapter five that he died at just the right time. While we were still sinners, that matters when Jesus died. It matters where Jesus died, that he died outside the city of Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews tells us about this, that because he died outside the city of Jerusalem, the idea was the symbolic idea that when he went outside the city, it was kind of painting this picture that no longer would God's people be considered holy by entering into Jerusalem. They would be considered holy by entering into Christ. It wasn't about the walls of that city anymore, the mountains that surrounded it. It was about coming to Jesus, right? The author of Hebrews lets us know this. It matters where Jesus died. It matters how Jesus died. All the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they paint this very vivid picture of the how of Jesus' death, that he was uh, you know, arrested by the Jews and put on trial by them and given over to the Romans to be scourged and mocked and beaten, a crown of thorns placed on his head with a purple robe so that soldiers could make fun of him and hit him and spit on him, that he carried his own cross up a hill to the place where he was crucified, that he was nailed onto that cross, and that he suffered there for six hours during the day dying in excruciating death on this cross as soldiers cast lots for his clothes, as onlookers walked by and mocked him, made fun of him, that he died at three o'clock in the afternoon as the sun turned black and the, the land went dark. It matters when Jesus died, where Jesus died, how Jesus died, but none of those things is the most important thing about his crucifixion, about his death, because here's why. There were two others that day that died the same when, the same where, the same how. Two other, two thieves on two crosses beside Jesus died the exact same day, the exact same way, in the exact same place. So what was it about the one on the middle cross? What was it about that guy that was different than the other two. That was different than their when, their where, their how. See, the most significant thing about Jesus' death was the who. That it was Jesus who died it. That's the most significant thing about his death. I'm, I'm looking through this passage this week, um, just thinking about Colossians 1, 15 to 20, really, and just thinking, like, why, why does Paul, as he writes this letter, why does he go to this place so quickly early on to, to say that he's the image of the invisible God, to say all these things, and then he comes down in the last part of this passage that we're going to read here in a second again, and just then he tells us we're reconciled to God in him, that he shed his blood on the cross. And I think his point is exactly that, that it matters the who of the cross matters ultimately, matters eternally. And if we don't get the who right, then we miss the gospel. We don't get the gospel right. If we don't see the divinity of Jesus, then we don't get the death of Jesus right. And so that's why he opens it up like this. So I just want to read through this passage one more time. And we're going to see four things about Jesus, who he is, as we read through Colossians chapter 1, 15. First thing is this, that he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that in Jesus we see God. Now, I know you and I don't physically see him, and even Peter talks about this in his letter, 1 Peter, where he says, even though you don't see him now, you love him and believe in him. Like even, even most of the people in the first century, they never saw him. Colosse, the people in Colossae never saw him, laid eyes on him. But Paul could say to them, he's the image of the invisible God. You haven't seen him with your physical eyes yet, but you will. 
We will lay eyes on Jesus one day. In John chapter 1, I told you we're going to go over to John. So flip over to John chapter 1 if you have a Bible with you. The Gospel of John. So in John chapter 1, he says this in verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwell is the same word as the Old Testament word tabernacle, where the the power and the glory of God would dwell amongst the people. This is Jesus now, our, our tabernacle, the presence of God. In Christ fully, right? And then in verse, verse 18, here's what he says. No one has ever seen God, but listen, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. Think about what he just said. No one's ever seen God, but God, who's at the Father's side. That's a weird thing to say, right? No one's seen God, but who? God. And who is this God that you're talking about? The one who's at the Father's. I thought the Father was God. He is God, but there's a God at the Father's side. Who is that? Jesus, right? No one's ever seen God, but God, who is at the Father's side, here's what he says, who is at the Father's side, has made him known, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but God, who is at the Father's side, has made, could John not more clearly say, Jesus is the image of God. No one's ever seen him, but God who's at the Father's side has made him known. That that word, made him known, that's really one word in the Greek. It just means to explain God. Other other translations actually say that too. Jesus has explained him. It's really the word where we get the word exposition from. That's a sermon. Jesus is the sermon of God to the world. If you were to ever think to yourself, and you've probably wondered this, what would God say to the world if he could say something to the world? You know what he would say? Christ, and he has said it. That's the point. That's what John means when he says Jesus is the word of God. He is the full and complete expression of every thought of the Father's mind given to the world in fullness. That we could see him, whether having actually laid eyes on him like John and and, and Peter and all those guys, or we get to see him in the Gospels. That's why there's four of them, right? So we could read through these four Gospels and see this beautiful, well-rounded picture of who the Son of God is. He's the image of the invisible God. The second point is this, that Jesus is supreme over physical creation. Jesus is supreme over physical creation. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn, okay, this, is, this messes a lot of people up. That firstborn idea, that can actually mean that he was born first, but really in this culture, the idea of the firstborn was one who has supremacy and preeminence over something else, right? So a firstborn in a family was kind of the head, right? I'm the firstborn of the family. So he's just saying Jesus is firstborn in the sense of significant supremacy over all of creation. Firstborn over all creation. He says, for by him, him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Do you hear all things four different times? All things. He created all things. They're made by him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. In the Greek, that word all things, it means all things. That's what it means. Like, that's the literal translation. And in case you're wondering what that means, it means everything. 
made by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. He's before it and he holds it all together. He's creator, supreme over everything. In the beginning, God said, right? He said, let there be light. God said, if you read Genesis 1, you're going to see that phrase over and over. God said, God said, God said, God said, God said. John 1 opens up and again, he calls Jesus what? The word. How did God create everything? Through Christ. The word. He spoke and it came into being. He holds all things together. There, there's a couple ideas in um, like whatever, astrophysics or whatever you want to call it, of dark energy and dark matter is what scientists will call it. And they literally, um, they, they would say the universe is made up mostly of this stuff that we don't know what it is. It's called dark energy or dark matter. It's what they call it. That's what scientists call it. Dark energy, dark matter. And it literally holds everything together. And for years they've studied this and they don't know what it is. Paul knew 2,000 years ago what it was. It's Jesus. Nobody asked Paul. They should because the, he understands through the inspiration of God in him to write this letter and go, it's Jesus. He holds everything together, every molecule in the universe. Uh, R.C. Sproul, some of you guys know R.C. Sproul or like him. Dr. R.C. Sproul passed away a couple years ago now. Um, great pastor of the 1900s, later 1900s, early 2000s. Um, he says this, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. He, he used to use this phrase called no rogue molecules. There is nothing in this universe that moves apart from the will of Jesus. This is our savior. He is supreme over physical creation. Next point, Jesus is supreme over the new creation, the church. So he's supreme over the old creation, physical creation, all things in the universe. And he's supreme over the church. Colossians 1.18 says this. He is the head of the body, the church. Everybody say the church. That's us. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so where Paul says everything, he, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you want to break all of the universe down into two versions of creation, old creation, sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, you and your physical body, every molecule, every atom, and you want to break it down into another part of creation called the new creation, which is the church, the kingdom of God that Jesus purchased with his own blood. He is supreme over both. He says that in everything, he might have preeminence. He has preeminence over Jupiter and your soul. This is the point. Jesus reigns supreme over everything in heaven and on earth. He is supreme over the new creation. Jesus, last point, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And I know this kind of reiterates the first point that he's the image of the invisible God, but I wanted to make this point specifically by using the word flesh because Paul has a very specific and intentional purpose here, talking about Jesus' body, Jesus' flesh. And we'll get to it here in a second, but here's what uh, verse 19 says. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, if, you, if you're maybe reading your own Bible, circle fullness 
That's a great thing to just maybe underline, circle. Please to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness dwell in him. And again, back to John chapter 1 where he says that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, he says, and the word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. He says, nothing was made that wasn't made through Jesus. This is John talking in chapter 1. The same idea that Paul has given us here, that we just want to make it so super clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. In the flesh. I actually want to read Colossians 2 verse 9 as well. He says almost the same thing again. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Lives, not lived, lives now. That he lived on this earth 33 years in flesh, then he died in flesh and he was resurrected in flesh. And now, right now, has flesh. Jesus is a physical being now, in heaven, forever, glorified. And when you and I go to heaven and we receive back in the resurrection at the end of all things, Jesus returns and he gives us our new bodies. Then we will be able to see with physical eyes a Jesus and a God that we could not see with the eyes we have now. Scripture says this throughout the Bible that we cannot look at him right now. Our weak and mortal bodies can't see him for who he is. But when we get our new resurrected bodies as Jesus' body is new and glorified, Philippians 3.20, that when he returns and gives us a new body like his body, we will lay eyes on him and we will see him, 1 Corinthians 13, perfectly, no longer like a, like a vague image in a mirror, but perfectly see him in the flesh. Do you know you will live in the flesh forever in Christ? In the body we will not be floating around. We will have bodies perfect and imperishable, undying like his body. Jesus is God in the flesh. And then he says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Why does Paul go through the, the pain of making us understand that he was God in the flesh? Because you cannot shed blood if you're not in the flesh. Why did Jesus, the, the holy, eternal son of God, supreme over all creation, why did he put on flesh? So that that flesh could bleed. The blood was the point. He had to have it. He had to come. He had to put on flesh, human bodies so that he could shed that blood to reconcile us to God in his flesh. He said, make peace for us with God by his blood shed on the cross. He shed his blood. He died on the cross. Who died? So go back to this. Why is Paul writing this? Who died? That's the question. Who's the middle man? Who's the guy between the two thieves? Who is that guy? The, the thieves are just men. They're just people who deserved what they got. One thief even confesses that. I deserve this. This guy doesn't. Who's the guy in the middle? Who died on that middle cross? He who is supreme over all creation. He who is the image of the invisible God. Who died on that cross? He who holds all things together. Who died? 
He who is the savior of the church, who died, the one who shed his blood to make us redeemed and reconciled to God, who died, the one who has dominion over all things, who died, the one who is the fullness of God, who died, the eternal sovereign son of God. He died outside that city, up that hill, on that Friday, between those two thieves, in that body, on that cross. The Son of God died. The eternal Son who became flesh, he died. Gave his physical body, gave his mortal life on a Roman cross. Why? Why did he die? There's really two answers to that question. One, he died to reconcile all things to himself. That's what he said again, verse 20. He said, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21, let's read that next paragraph. He says, once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's just another way of saying, once you lived in sin, in the domain of darkness, we read that last week, you lived in this. This is who you were apart from Jesus. He says, but now, verse 22, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical, there it is again, physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So the two reasons he died was, one, to reconcile all things to himself. He says that uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God has put all things under his feet in, in, in Ephesians 1.10, it says that this was the plan from the beginning for God to bring all things together under the head of Christ, right? In Philippians 2.11, it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at the end of all things, that he died to reconcile everything and every person under his authority, but also, number two, to reconcile us to God the Father, that we could have relationship with him in our sin. This relationship is severed, broken, irreparable in our own strength by our own righteousness because we don't have any. But by his blood, through his physical body shed on the cross, we are reconciled to God, brought back to him. This is why Paul takes so much time right here at the beginning of Colossians to say, look at who he is. Look at his supremacy. Look at his deity. Look at the fact that he has reigned supreme over all creation from all time. That he was uncreated himself. He created all things. He is God. Because if that's not true, then whoever died on that cross did not, could not pay for your sins. He couldn't do it unless he's really God. If you take the deity away from Christ, you cut the feet out from the gospel. He is God, eternal, forever. So here's a way I want to say this. Uh, you can write this down or just think about it, and I'll give you a simpler way of thinking about it after I say it once. But the supremacy of who Jesus is upholds the sufficiency of what Jesus did. The supremacy of who he is 
upholds the sufficiency of what he did. And maybe a simpler way to put that, because Jesus is eternally God, his death is eternally good. Because of who he is, his death matters forever. And why does that matter for me and you? What's the worst thing you've ever done? Don't answer out loud. I got some stuff. You got some stuff. The worst thing you have ever done? If Jesus is not God, that thing is still on you because there is no blood valuable enough to pay for it. But if he is God, then his blood that was shed has canceled the record of that debt. And he says, he says here, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then he says in verse 22, to present you holy in his sight, God's sight. How is this possible except through the most valuable blood ever shed, right? To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I hope you just said amen in your heart at least because that, that is possible only because of who died on that cross, the Son of God. Not just a good man, not just a prophet, not just some sort of angelic being. This seems to be what the teacher in Colossae, why Paul's writing this, what this guy was teaching, like Jesus is less than this. Or maybe he was fully God, but when he died, he wasn't like, this is actual teaching. Maybe his deity left him before he died. And Paul's going, no, he died as God. Never stopped being God. He gave himself up so that his blood could pay for the worst sins in the world, for whoever would come to him in faith. And so I just want to end, um, I want to read one more passage. This is 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read this. Um, and after I read this, I'm just going to lead us through a, a time of prayer. But the, the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote the gospel, Jesus is the word who became flesh, like he spends a lot of time letting us know throughout his gospel and his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that Jesus is God. And he ends his letter of 1st John like this. He says, we're going to start in verse uh, 20. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. And then he says this, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I always thought this was the weirdest ending of any letter in the Bible. He didn't say one word about idolatry throughout the letter. But his point in the letter is, look at Jesus, see Jesus, abide in Jesus, trust in Jesus, know that he is all sufficient. He's done everything that you need. You just keep walking in him. You keep trusting in him. You put your faith in him. And then he just ends it with this thought, stop worshiping idols. Anything that's not Jesus. That's the point. Is there something in your life that you give more weight, more stock, more glory to than the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, in your heart and in your mind? 
Is there something you believe you need to add to your faith in order to be sufficient for your salvation? Maybe it's your own strength, your own knowledge, your own wisdom, stuff that you have, things that you consider important in this world. Maybe it's some other religious experience. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So here's what I want to do, just to kind of close it out. I want to just lead us through a time of prayer. Here's what I want to do. Just bow your heads and close your eyes with me together. Just bow your heads right where you're at. Just close your eyes. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And you just think in your mind. First question is this. What is your favorite thing about you? What is your favorite thing about you? Just think of it. Maybe it's your personality, maybe it's your skills, something that you can do, or the way that you look, or whatever. Listen, it can't save you. No matter what it is. Second question, what is your least favorite thing about you? What is the thing about you you just can't stand? Listen, it cannot keep you from being saved by Jesus. And the last question, what is the hardest part of your life right now? What's the hardest thing you're going through? What's a trial? What's a challenge you're dealing with? Because of who Jesus is, it can't stop his power, the power of his blood shed on the cross to reconcile all things to himself and to make all things new. I don't know if you need to hear this this morning, but you don't hold everything together. He does. That's what it says. He holds everything together. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the one who died on that cross. And he is the one who lives now forevermore. So let's pray together. God, I just thank you so much for Jesus. It's a simple message today, God, that we just get to bask in the glory of who Christ is, that he is your image, he is your son, he is your word. He is the one that you have put forth for us to see and know and trust and the one who shed his own blood to die for our sins and to redeem us from all the things in this world that separate us from you, the things that we want to love, the idols that we want to place in our hearts and our minds. God, we thank you that you've given us Christ. Help us, God. Strengthen us to live in him, to trust in him, to rejoice in the fact that he is God as you are God, as your spirit is God in us. And God, if there is anyone who knows um, right now that they don't know Jesus, God, I pray that you would birth that hope and that faith in their hearts this morning to see him for who he is, to trust in what he's done. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.